Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Live with Doug. My name is Doug, and we are live on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, thinking through God's Word together. Glad you could all join us this morning as we continue to work through Romans 9, 10, and 11 uh, to ask the, or answer the question, what about Israel? So glad that you are here. Hey, Paul. Hey, Curtis. Good morning, Alan. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, so are you enjoying this study? Uh, I'm enjoying it for a variety of reasons, one of which, and maybe the top of the list is, and this this will become increasingly true as we work through this challenging section coming up in chapter 11, we are going to see God's master plan and the goal that Paul gives us is worship and awe at God's grace and mercy and his sovereign power over everything, the events of history. And uh, and we'll see that as we go. I don't want to give it all away yet, but uh, this has been great for me to go back over these things and be reminded what God has done with Israel and the Gentiles and back to Israel, back to the Gentiles, all of that. It's... Uh, it's pretty amazing. So anyway, glad you're with us. I was just reflecting on that earlier this morning, thinking uh, we, we need to remember as events unfold in our day that God is in, he's in control of all the things that are happening and he has a plan. Nothing's happening by accident. This is all unpacking his, uh, his plan for the world. So anyway, I don't know. This is on my heart, so I decided to share it. Uh, so let's get back to Romans 11. And uh, we started off with the question, uh, verse 1 of chapter 11, Paul says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? And his response, may it never be. And the proof that God has not rejected his people is that Paul himself is a Jew. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, a descendant of Abraham, and he has received the benefits of the Messiah, even though the vast majority of the Jews of his day rejected Christ, and the majority of the Jews in all of history had uh, disobeyed God and turned away from him, Uh, but God has not rejected all Jews, Paul himself being proof positive that that is true, and then he uh, quotes from the Old Testament here and uses Elijah and the discussion there uh, as more proof that uh, in Elijah's day, he thought he was the only prophet left. And God said, no, I've kept 7,000 men. And Paul says, in the same way, in the same way as when God preserved 7,000 prophets of Elijah's day, in the same way there's come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Now, as we go through this, I'm going to keep pointing out key terms that will be important later on. And one of them is present time. Paul is talking about his day. There has come to be in his day, in Paul's day, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Uh, You'll see why I stress that down the road. And then he says, if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is not grace. We talked about that yesterday. So let's pick up here in verse 7. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. Now, he's already told us what Israel is seeking. Israel is seeking righteousness 
by the law, right? We saw that earlier. And they're seeking that and they have not obtained it because the law simply condemns them. It cannot justify them because they can't keep it. The righteousness that comes through faith in, in the Messiah, they've missed that. Right? That's what he means by Israel is seeking something but hasn't obtained it. But those who were chosen obtained it and the rest were hardened. And we looked at that la- uh, yesterday, I believe, that uh, there's always been that greater circle, Israel, biological Israel, the uh, those that can trace their genealogy back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Most of them were hardened throughout all of history, including in Paul's day. Most of the Jews were hardened. They were, they were disobedient and God judged them. But there was always a remnant, the elect Israel within ethnic Israel, who received God's grace. And that's what he's getting at here. Those who were chosen obtained it. So Paul and Peter and the apostles and the 3,000 that came to the Lord on the day of Pentecost and so on, they are the chosen ones. They received God's grace and mercy and righteousness. The rest were hardened. And Paul is now going to quote from the Old Testament, again, as he has all the way through here, to show this is not new news. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, this is not new news. You should know this just as it is written. And here he quotes from uh, Deuteronomy 29 and Isaiah 29. And uh, I think we looked at Deuteronomy already. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass over this one because I want to spend most of our time this morning on the next one. So here's the quote from Isaiah 29 and Deuteronomy 29. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor eyes to see not, and ears to hear not, down to this very day. So the chosen obtained the righteousness of the Messiah. The rest were hardened, and Paul says this was already prophesied about. God would give them a spirit of stupor, and and they'd have eyes, but they couldn't see, and ears they couldn't hear. Uh, So God shut them off from perception of Messiah. And then David says, and he's going to quote Psalm 69 here, Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. So this is a quote from Psalm 69. And do you see, very important that you see this, that Paul is using Psalm 69 as evidence that God was going to harden Israel. Do you see that? Chosen obtained it, the rest were hardened, just as it is written. And David says, let their table become a snare. I hope you see that. It's very important to see he's using this text to show that Psalm 69 was talking about the hardening of Israel. So, let let me come at it this way. Uh, In Luke 24, Jesus said, the law and the prophets... The Psalms, they all spoke of me, he said. And, and he was walking along there, the road to Emmaus, and there were some disciples uh, who were dismayed, and, and Jesus rebuked them harshly. Oh, you men of foolish hearts, slow to believe all that was written. You should have known as you read the Old Testament that the Messiah would suffer on the cross and then be raised again. He, he's pretty, pretty strong with him there. But it's the concept of the entire Old Testament pointing to Jesus that I want to stress. Um, I teach this all the time in our seminary courses. I taught it uh, when I was pastoring. And 
people have a hard time figuring this out. How do we do this? What, how do we go and find Jesus in the Old Testament? Well, Paul has been modeling this for us all through this section, and, and I want to see this again. So Psalm 69 is about Jesus. Now, now David wrote it, and it's not prophecy in the sense that he's merely looking forward. He's writing his own experience. But what God does is he takes this David, who is a, a type of Jesus, a, a foreshadow of the coming king, we see that all over the place, right? Uh, the, the prophets talk about David coming again to sit on the throne in Jerusalem. Well, we now understand that's Jesus. David's not going to be reincarnated. It's not about David, but David, the, the king that was chosen to, to lead Israel early on, is a, a symbol, a type, a foreshadow, a representation of the ultimate David who is coming that we now know as Jesus, the Messiah. So as you read the Psalms of David, you, you can see uh, a glimpse of some things about Jesus. Now, I'm going to show you this, and, and you already know some of this. If you're familiar with the New Testament, you know some of this from Psalm 69, but you may not have gone where Paul did. Paul read the Old Testament as a Christian not as a Jew. Do you know what I mean by that? After Paul was converted, he realized that the Old Testament was about Jesus, about the Messiah. Everything predicted and prophesied pointed toward the coming of the Messiah. So now he went back and he read the Old Testament looking to see how it pointed to Jesus. Do you realize that Paul had 10 years or so when after he was converted, where we didn't hear anything from him. He was just went off to Antioch and then and then left. And it was, it was 10 years later or so that Barnabas went and got him and brought him down to Antioch and his ministry started. What was he doing during those 10, 10 years? Well, I'm convinced he went to uh, Jesus Seminary, or what I like to refer to as the original New Covenant School of Theology, uh, because I'm convinced that during that time, the Lord was showing him how the scriptures pointed to Jesus himself. So that as he then launched his ministry, and we read about it through the book of Acts, and then all of these epistles that he wrote, we see how time and time again, he goes to the Old Testament to show how it reveals Christ. I'm going to show you how he does it here. And again, some of this is familiar to you. So let's look at Psalm 69. Says here for the choir director, according to Shashanim, a Psalm of David. So, just as prefatory remarks here, this is David's own experience, his own his own heart being poured out. But also think of Jesus. Now there are limits, and I'll point those out as well. It's not not every word can apply to Jesus, but but imagine. This is Jesus on the cross. I'll, I'll give you a little preparation ahead of time. This is Jesus on the cross. Okay? Picture Jesus on the cross saying some of these things, as well as David saying these things in his day. Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. So David is under some kind of threat, so much so that he's overwhelmed and he thinks he's about to drown. And, of course, you can imagine Jesus on the cross also 
experiencing this, right? Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire, and there's no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and a flood overflows me. I am weary with crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Again, you can imagine David saying this as Saul's chasing him or somebody's chasing him down. And you can think of Jesus on the cross feeling alone and and experiencing uh, the wrath. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. What I did not steal, I then have to restore. Again, think of Jesus here. Those who hate me without cause, the the Jews who put Jesus on the cross, they had no claim on him, right? They were all false charges they brought. And he says, there are more than the hairs of my head. Think about how many there were uh, just prior to the crucifixion, clamoring, crucify him crucify him. The the high priests uh, and and the other leaders went out and stirred up the crowds, crucify, crucify. And you can imagine Jesus there on the cross saying, I look out at all these people who who hate me, and there's many, many, many of them. Oh God, it is you who know my folly, and my wrongs are not hidden from you. Now, obviously that part's not going to apply to Jesus. He didn't have any any wrongs, but David would have certainly had some. May those who wait for you those who wait for you, God, not be ashamed through me, O Lord God of hosts. May those who seek you not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus uh, thinking, as I hang here, Lord, don't let those who trust me, who follow me, let them not be ashamed of you and and, uh, dishonor you as they look at this. I think that's pretty cool. Because for your sake, I have borne reproach and dishonor has covered my face. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. Uh, everybody turned their back on Jesus. The disciples scattered uh, at, when he was arrested. And he went through this alone. He was estranged from them. He was an alien to his mother's sons. Do you, do you realize that James, who wrote the book of James, and Jude who wrote the book of Jude in the New Testament, those are both Jesus' brothers. James was, uh, he eventually became the the leader of the church in Jerusalem. We see his his words in Acts 15 that are so influential there. They did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah before the resurrection. In fact, at one point, they said to Jesus, oh, look, if you're really him, why don't you go down there to Jerusalem now? Just go on down and present yourself. And Jesus says, I won't. The time is always right for you, but it's not right for me. What they were probably doing when they urged him to go to Jerusalem was go down there and get himself killed. They didn't believe in him. They thought he was an imposter. They said, go on down there. If you're, the, if you're really the Messiah, go on down to Jerusalem and present yourself. Thinking the people would revolt and probably have him executed then. And Jesus knew that as well. And he said, no, I'm not going. And then he actually did slip out at night, but he didn't go to present himself uh, publicly yet. They didn't believe in him. His own mother's sons, his brothers, did not believe in him until after the resurrection. And then something about seeing a dead man alive (laughs) will change your, your perspective on things. Okay, so here's the first verse that we know this is about Jesus, right? 
Verse 9. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So he's saying, I'm receiving uh, you, Father. I'm receiving the reproach on me for those who, who reproach you. But it's this phrase. Zeal for your house has consumed me. How do we know? that this is talking about Jesus. Do you know? Put it put it in the chat here if, if you got this. How do we know that this is uh, David's writing it, but now we're, we're seeing that this is actually about Jesus from this statement, for zeal for your house has consumed me. Anybody, uh, anybody know that? Is that ringing any bells uh, for anyone? Uh, this is, uh, I know there's a delay and giving you time to type. <laughs> I need to find some filler material for when I ask you these questions and give you a chance. I know some of you know this, and uh, I want to give you a chance here. By the way, while I'm waiting, uh, Chris says, uh, yes, and also seeing the point Israel may not be God's chosen now. Ooh, very good. Some uh, some thoughts are rustling there. Yeah, Lon got it. Got it. Uh, Jesus quotes this, or actually the disciples quote it. Let me show you in John chapter 2. He drives out the money changers in the temple. In John 2, he made a scourge. He drove out all those in the temple who were uh, in the sheep, the oxen. Who He poured out the coins of the money changers and those who were selling the doves. And he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered. This, is, this would be after the death and resurrection. They then reflected on Jesus throwing out the money changers. And his disciples remembered it was written zeal for your house will consume me. Right? So this is this is John and the other disciples reflecting on Jesus throwing out the money changers from the temple and they associate that event with this statement from the Old Testament that zeal for the temple, zeal for God's house will consume me. Well, where's this quote taken from? Ding, 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 ding. Psalm 69, for zeal for your house has consumed me. So the John and the other disciples are reading the Old Testament as the story of Jesus, as a Christian. And they, they realize this me here, right here in verse 9, this me is Jesus. Let that inform you as, you as you go on through here. When I wept in my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gate talk about me, and I'm the song of the drunkards. You can imagine all the Jews uh, getting drunk and singing about that that ridiculous imposter, Jesus, and he's getting what he deserves as he gets crucified. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time. O God, in the greatness of your loving kindness, answer me with your saving truth. We see Jesus not doubting the Father here. Deliver me from the mire and do not let me sink. May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters. He's calling out to the Lord for help. We, we think of other things that he said on the cross at the end, right? And to your hands, Father, I commit my spirit, that kind of thing. May the flood of water not overflow me, nor the deep swallow me up, nor the pit shut its mouth on me. Again, asking for deliverance from the Lord. Answer me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. According to the greatness of your compassion, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Answer me quickly. 
O oh, draw near to my soul and redeem it. Ransom me because of my enemies. Uh, he's calling out, buy me back out of this, this, uh, this enslavement I'm in. And certainly for Jesus, it's not enslavement to sin or anything like that. He just rescue me, redeem me, uh, help me, O oh Lord, kind of thing. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. All my adversaries are before you. you. You, Lord, you, Father, you know, you see what I'm going through. You see the shame I've taken on me and all my enemies here, they're, they're in, here in your presence. Reproach has broken my heart and I'm so sick. And I looked for sympathy, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. Again, Jesus, uh, he's on the cross alone and, uh, and, and feeling that rejection by all. Now, his mother's there, we, we know that, and, and John does, does show up there. But by and large, he's feeling all alone. And, and we even know from Psalm 22, which is also about Jesus on the cross, we know he, he eventually cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So on one hand, he trusts the Lord, but on another hand, he, he feels the weight of rejection because he's got our sin on him, and the Father is, uh, is forsaking him and giving him the punishment that, that we deserve. Well, we could just preach a whole sermon here, couldn't we? All right, so the next verse, same thing uh, as we saw earlier. We, we get a direct quote in the Gospels from this next verse, verse 21. They also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink. So there's David saying this, but then the New Testament applies this to Jesus. We see it here in Matthew as they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. So this is Jesus on the cross, right? And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which, remain, which means a place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. Again, you see Psalm 69, they gave me gall for my food and for my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink. And that's quoted here as they gave him vinegar on the cross. And then in John, same thing. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, he's hanging on the cross. And he realizes he, he's, he's fully conscious of the fact that he has fulfilled all that was prophesied about his going to the cross. To fulfill the scripture, he said, I am thirsty. Isn't that interesting? He, he's done it. He's hanging on the cross. He, he knows he's, he's done the job that he was called to do. He's fulfilled the will of his father. He's accomplished all that the scripture said that he needed to do. And then he says, I am thirsty to fulfill the scripture, knowing they're going to respond with a jar full of sour wine. They put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He is self-conscious that this passage is about him. And to fulfill this line, he says, I'm thirsty. Not because he's thirsty, he spits it out. Now, that may have been <laughs> because it was nasty. It was gall and vinegar, but... He's fulfilling, self-consciously fulfilling Psalm 69 here. Now look at his statement about those who have put him on the cross, his fellow Jews. May their table become a snare before them. See that? May their table before them become a snare, and when they are in peace, may it become a trap. 
This is what's quoted here in, in Romans 11. David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. That's Psalm 69. Think of Jesus on the cross saying, now you might be thinking, wait a minute. I thought Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's directed at the Romans. I believe, based on this text, I believe that is a statement saying the Romans who actually drove the nails through his hands, they don't understand what they're doing. The Jews who clamored for his execution, for his crucifixion, they knew full well what they were doing. And I believe we're getting instruction here that Jesus' words are, may their table become a snare when they are in peace, may become a trap. May their eyes grow dim so they cannot see. Hardening, hard hearts, as he said, similar to what he quoted from Deuteronomy, eyes to see not, ears to hear not. May their eyes grow dim so they cannot see and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation on them and may your burning overtake them. In the psalmist's mouth, here in his voice, as David writes, this is the prophecy of the attitude toward the Jews. May they be the recipients of your indignation. Verse 25 is fascinating. And our time is running out quickly, so I will just mention this, but it's worth your study. Look at this. May their camp be desolate. May none dwell in their tents. I've pointed out over and over and over again this word desolate that we keep seeing in the Old Testament, especially in Isaiah. It's also very important in Daniel chapter 9. May their camp be desolate. We'll, we'll come back to the desolation down the road, probably next week sometime. But this verse here, does anybody know where this verse is quoted in the New Testament? Can you Do you know it without looking? Anybody? I'm going to give you a second here to, to see if you can rack your brain. It's very interesting. I'm going to go on, give you a chance to, uh, to see if you know, and then I'll come back to it here in a minute. For they have persecuted him whom you yourself has smitten, and they tell of the pain of those whom you have wounded. Again, very interesting. You have smitten. Jesus, remember, was put on the cross ultimately by God. Isaiah 53 says, we considered him, looking at the, the one who would go to the cross, looking at the, the, the lamb, the servant who would come. We considered him smitten by God. He was. Do you remember in Acts chapter 2? Uh, or is it a little later? I forget. Where, uh, where Peter is, is preaching the gospel. and uh, It is Acts chapter 2. And he says, you Jews put Jesus on the cross through the hands of godless men, meaning the Romans, they're the ones that actually nailed the, the nails, but it was all the predetermined, predestined plan of God. God is ultimately the one who put Jesus on the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Gave him for what? To go to the cross. God put Jesus on the cross. That's what he means here. You, God, you have smitten Jesus. You have wounded Jesus on the cross. 
But they, the Jews, the onlookers, they persecuted him. They, are, they also were responsible for him going to the cross. They persecuted him, the one who God has smitten. All right, nobody's answering, so I'm going to assume you don't know what... Uh, uh, Oh, uh, verse 25 is about. This is quoted in Acts chapter 1. Let me read it to you. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. So this is this is uh, early Acts. This is r- right on the leading up to the day of Pentecost. And the disciples and uh, Mary and the s- several of the women and there's you know, 120 people are gathered in this upper room praying. That's the setting. Here's what it says. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering about 120 persons was there and said, brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Interesting. He's going to quote a scripture of David, a psalm, about Judas. This Judas, Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus. Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. So Peter is reading the Old Testament as a Christian, reading it as the story of Jesus. And he reads a Psalm of David that says something about Judas who's going to betray Jesus. He goes on, gives us a little more information about Judas. And then he hears the Psalm from David that he quotes, that he says is about Judas. Here it is. Let his homestead be made desolate. Let no one dwell in it and let another man take his office. This, let, a, let his homestead be desolate. Let no one dwell in it. This is the Greek translation of this verse. Let their camp be desolate. How's it translated? The homestead camp, same thing. Let their camp be desolate and may none dwell in their tents. So Peter reads this and he concludes, this is about Judas who led the Jews to arrest Jesus in Gethsemane, which led to his crucifixion and made none dwell in it. Peter draws the conclusion, it is necessary that of all the men who've accompanied us, the Lord that we replace him that gets to Psalm 119 or Psalm 109. Sorry, I'm mixing it up anyway. Isn't that interesting? He reads this about Judas and says this is why Judas betray, uh, uh, committed suicide because he was destined for it. All right, I got to move on. Uh, time is already up. For they have persecuted, I already read that. Add iniquity to their iniquity. This is talking about the Jews of Jesus' day, I believe. And may they not come into your righteousness. Do you see that? Add iniquity to their iniquity. They who who pursued me in, uh, in crucifixion, add iniquity to their iniquity, and may they not come into your righteousness. They're hardened. They rejected the Messiah. They did not obtain the righteousness which is by faith. May they be blotted out of the book of life. And may they not be recorded with the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. May your salvation, O God, set me securely on high. I will praise the name of God with song and magnify him with thanksgiving. He knows this is not the end. Jesus knows 
death on the cross is not the end. He knows where this is going, and so he praises God. And will it will please the Lord better than an ox or a young bull with horns and hoofs. The humble have seen it and are glad. You who seek God, let your heart revive. Don't be dismayed at the cross. There's good things coming. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his his who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it. The descendants of his servants will inherit it. Those who love his name will dwell in it. Isn't this interesting? So we have the scene of Jesus on the cross and the the, the ones who put him there and Jesus saying, May they receive wrath, add iniquity to them. May they not be counted among the righteous. Then he extols God's goodness and praises him in hope. And then says, God will save Zion. Now this is David writing. This is 1,500 years, no, it's 1,000 years before Christ. It's... 400 years plus before the original fall of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. He's looking forward and realizes Zion is going to be destroyed. Judah is going to be wiped out. That happened in 586. And it happened again in AD 70, 40 years after Jesus. And here he cries out, God will save Zion. He will build the cities of Judah. Their destruction, that's not the end of the story. Many will dwell there and possess it. The descendants of his servants will inherit it. One of the promises that his people will inherit the city again. And those who love his name will dwell in it. All of that is in this psalm where Paul quotes saying it was all predicted that the Jews would reject Christ because they were hardened. You see that. David predicted it. So then the question comes, did they stumble over the stumbling stone? We've already looked at that in detail. So as to fall was the purpose of their rejection, the purpose of their hardening, the purpose of all of this, they're stumbling over Christ, was that so that they would have a complete collapse? And Paul's response is, may it never be. What do you mean by that, Paul? For that, you'll have to come back tomorrow. I hope this is making sense to you. If it's not, please uh, please ask some questions. Leave it in the chat. I'll be happy to inter- interact, or you can ask me some more questions tomorrow. But give this some thought, ponder this. And uh, tomorrow, Lord willing, we'll come back and continue looking at this great chapter. Have a great day. God bless.